Our gospel reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're visiting with us for the first time this morning, we're in the middle of a sermon series uh, on our liturgy. We're looking at the various components of our liturgy, working front to back. And if you haven't noticed so far this morning, this time we're talking about the offering. We're talking about money. We're talking about giving. So I'm going to pray in a minute, and if you want to get up and leave, I won't be offended. But if you stick around, you can't be offended, because I've warned you that we're going to be talking about money. So let me pray for us as we get started. Father, I pray that we would be able to encounter you as we talk about a sometimes sensitive issue that we all have to relate to, that we all have to figure out what our views are about money. I pray that you would be with us. I pray that we would see through our disposition towards money, what lies at, at the bottom of our hearts, that we would be able to see what really controls the narrative of our lives, that we would be able to see that often we use money to try and control our lives, to control other people, to control other people's perceptions of us. And Father, wherever we're coming from this morning, Christian or not, follower of Jesus or not, skeptical or believing, I pray that you would help us through the lens of giving, of money, to see the gospel, to see the life, death, and resurrection of your Son. And we pray in his name. Amen. A study was published a few years ago in the journal Science, and it was entitled The Psychological Consequences of Money. And it found that folks with money on their minds are less helpful, less considerate, and less willing to ask for help for themselves. Money may not be the root of all evil, the study says, but it might be the root of some indifference. Subjects in this study were asked in a variety of ways to um, uh, whether or not they would help. Someone in need of money, someone who accidentally dropped something on the sidewalk, someone who needed help moving, and so forth. And those who were primed in the study to be thinking about money beforehand were less willing to be charitable, and they were less willing to help. We didn't find any animosity, the study says. We don't have any indication that they were intentionally being rude to these people. It's just that they weren't mindful of other people. They just didn't see that they had a role in this certain person's life. One psychologist participating in the study said that she came to believe that the acquisition of wealth for the wrong reasons uh, is virtually a prescription for unhappiness. So much of the literature says that there is an inverse relationship between subjective well-being and materialism, but it only holds when the motives have to do with the desire to hoard to amass wealth, to amass money for power and control rather than as a vehicle for generosity. The Bible, whether we like it or not, talks a lot about money. It talks a lot about our disposition to money. 
It talks about how there is this inverse relationship between our spiritual well-being and our proclivity towards materialism and greed. It talks about how for the rich, money can become our sense of sufficiency. It it can become our idol. And for the poor, it it can become our idol in another way because it, 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 (laughs) it can become our greatest hope. And that for all of us, regardless of how much we have, that money can come to supplant God in our lives, that it can come to be our salvation. Regardless of how much we have, money is always a spiritual issue. Now imagine with me, if you will, going to see your physician, and you meet with her and you say, you know, doc, I'm always tired, I'm having these headaches, I can't work, I can't focus, I know that there's something wrong with me. And then she has the nerve to ask you all of these private details about your life. Well, how are you sleeping? How much are you eating? And what are you eating? Do you smoke? Do you drink too much? You would never say, how dare you? (laughs) How dare you ask me these private details about my life? No, why? Because you know instinctively, intuitively, that all of those things are interrelated. All of those things are connected to your overall physical well-being. We can't compartmentalize those things in our lives and say, don't ask me about this. This certainly could have no bearing on my physical health. And in the same way, God says that our spiritual life, our spiritual well-being is dependent upon an array of interconnected factors, one of which is our disposition towards and use of our money. As Jesus, as he was preaching in the temple, we know from the previous chapter, as Jesus looked up, He saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. We see a number of things in this, but we see, first of all, that the temple, then the church, God's people have always had a place and a regular pattern to give, that it's always been a part of their lives, of their lives, and particularly of the liturgy of the church. Now, likely this treasury was the collection place for alms, what the temple used to help those, to assist those who were poor. But this poor widow comes not to ask for assistance, but she comes bringing all that she has, two copper coins, which would be the smallest coin in circulation in that time. Now, she could have kept one for herself, and no one would have been the wiser, and probably no one would have cared because it didn't matter so much to the temple treasury. It was two small coins, and everyone would have understood. She's dirt poor. Let her give half of what she has. Even that would be enormous. But you see, the widow understood something about giving, that it's less connected to the well-being of the temple and having it be able to keep its light on, per, uh, per se, but she knows that money is connected to something deeper. She knows that money is connected to her heart. And we know, we read in uh, Psalm 51, David is confessing to God this great sin in his life. And he says, you don't desire sacrifice or I would offer one. You don't want a burnt offering. The sacrifice that you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. In the ancient world, there are all sorts of sacrifices and offerings and rituals done to appease certain gods. But in the Old Testament, the sacrifices, the offerings, the giving isn't a a ritual that's meant to appease God, but it's a regular practice that's designed to reveal the true orientation of one's heart. 
Sacrifices and burnt offerings in that time and giving today were meant to be an expression of worship and trust. And they're meaningless as pure ritual, as pure duty. Like any other spiritual discipline, they can be misused. And in the Old Testament narrative, we see that they often were, that they were used to try and curry favor with God, to try and buy him off, that I've given this way and so therefore you owe me. And God says that not only are you missing the point in bringing offerings in this way, but you're actually moving away from me, spiritually speaking, when you do that. You're bringing a righteous act without a righteous heart. David is not saying in this psalm that ritual sacrifice, giving as a regularly scheduled act isn't important, but that you're wasting your time if you don't also bring your heart, that it's an indication of the disposition of your heart. And the widow gets this because she doesn't give the bare minimum, whatever that minimum would be. She gives, though she is poor, out of the, out of the abundance of her loving heart. She gives everything that she has. Now, it's impressive when someone gives, some charitable donor gives an enormous gift to an institution or to the church. They give $100,000, and we're impressed. But we wouldn't be impressed if we knew that they made that year a million dollars. That doesn't seem as sacrificial as it would for someone who made very little, giving 50% of what they earned. This widow gave gave virtually nothing, but it was everything to her. Now, let's not be too hard on the rich because in this room, most of us are in comparison to the rest of the world. And the rich were largely responsible in that day for funding and building the ma- and maintaining the temple. And that's often true of the church today. Jesus tells us in Mark 12 that many rich people put in large amounts. And that's not insignificant. It's not unimportant. Yet it's this woman, this poor woman, who gives in tangibly very little, who lives on in Jesus' teaching, who lives on as the model for our giving and our disposition towards money. She gives two pennies and is said to have put in more than all the others. Why is that? It's not that her gift balances the church budget. It's that her gift represents her heart. She put in everything. Those two pennies wouldn't have done very much for the church in a practical sense, but they were an act of utter devotion, an act of true worship. When wealthy people give to institutions, there's often some external validation for it. This program is brought to you by the generous funding of the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. How many times have we heard that? Wealthy people love to see their names on things. It's part of the motivation to give. And and there's nothing wrong with giving accolades to someone, with giving recognition to someone who's given a, a, a large gift, because even the church needs wealthy benefactors to do creative things. But Jesus singles out not the wealthy, but the poor widow, and to say to her, your gift matters, and I see you. I recognize the expense that this is to you. I I see your sacrifice, even though no one else does. God is more concerned about what is done in us than what is accomplished through us in the act of giving. So whether we give $10,000 or whether we give $10, our gift is significant. 
He is concerned that we use the ritual, this regular act of giving, to demonstrate and cultivate a heart of generosity. Now, in the last few years, myself, along with the other leaders here, have tried to talk more frankly, more openly, more transparently with you about the state of our budget, about giving patterns, about needs and opportunities. And we've tried to err on the side of maybe even over-communicating a little bit, rather than waiting until we're in a crisis time and then coming to you for help. And we do this for a number of reasons. One is that you deserve it. This is your church, and you deserve to be kept abreast of what is going on in the church and how we're doing as an institution, how our ministry is either constricted or can be accelerated by gifts. Secondly, if you're a member of InTown, you've made a commitment, you've made a public vow to support this church to the very best of your ability. And so for you to be faithful to your own vow, you need to know what's going on in the church, the opportunities that are in front of us. And thirdly, and most importantly, is that we've tried to talk about the facts and figures, the details of our budget underneath this larger, much more important rubric of how giving is important for our souls, that it's more about what God wants for his people than what he wants from his people. I have a a good friend who pastors a, a fairly large church, and every year he gets a list of people from the bookkeeper whose giving has gone down substantially in the last year, or uh, of anyone who has given less than $1,000 uh, that particular year. Now, they live in a, a fairly wealthy, affluent area, but he then gets that list and goes and actually visits with each person on that list in their home or over lunch just as a spiritual checkup, just to see how they're doing. Not directly asking them necessarily about the amount, but just thinking of it as a barometer. Now, don't worry, I'm not proposing this as a new practice in our church. That's not my style. But he doesn't like it either. But he does it whether the church is doing very well financially or whether it's not, because he's convinced that giving is a barometer of the soul of his people, the overall spiritual health. And he's learned things about his people that he would have never heard, never known otherwise. People that had reservations about the direction of the church that weren't telling them. People that were crushed underneath mountains of student debt. People who just can't make ends meet on their current salary, as well as people who are just hurting and drifting and confused spiritually. People who are in great need, people who were drifting spiritually, and he wouldn't have known had he not sat down with them with money being the indicator, money being the thermometer, money being the sign that something was not right with these people. It's not always true, but he's discovered so much that he can help pastor these people through. Now, of course, our generosity goes far beyond money. We're to be generous in our friendships, in our marriages, with our children, in our neighborhood, And the question is, are we willing to invest our whole selves and our whole hearts? Does our pursuit of wealth, does our work rob us of time to invest in friendships, to invest in our church? Wouldn't have anyone understood this widow skipping out on church to go and do a little extra work because she had nothing. She was dirt poor. Of course, it would have been an act of mercy to say, look, go and do what you need to do today. We'll take care of of the church business. But don't we skip out, I do, on 
relationships, on our commitments for far less critical reasons. We should ask ourselves this morning, where do we need to generate, where do we need to cultivate generosity in our lives? Where are you saying, my time is mine and I will not give it? My money is mine and I will not share it. My privacy is mine and I will not open it up to anyone in my community group to meddle with. Well, you see, that's really your choice. That's my choice. But it's sort of the same principle as with giving, that we can go through the motions, but we're not going to grow spiritually if we don't open up our heart, if we don't open up our wallet to other people. We give our time, we give our money, we give our privacy, not primarily because God needs it, but because you and I need it. And this is a principle that's built in the very fabric of creation itself, that creation is an act of generosity. You see, a flower is not beautiful because it needs to be, but because God is lovely, God is beautiful, God loves beauty, and He wants you to enjoy it. The Oregon coast is beautiful, not because uh, it has to be, but because God loves Oregonians. He's giving us this wonderful gift. God has created a world for us to flourish in and to find joy in its wonder and its beauty. One British pastor says that the creation narrative in Genesis, in that we are taught this understanding of the world, not just so that we might understand our origins, but so that we might learn to imitate his lavish generosity, that we might become like him. The reason that God loves a cheerful giver is that he is one, that it is in his very nature to be a joyous, sacrificial, generous giver. And we have a model of radical self-giving love, radical generosity in the person of God Himself and in His creation. That even when we despoil it and when we despoil ourselves, instead of standing far off and saying, now fix the mess you've made, He says, I will come after you. And He pursues us in the person of His Son to repair what is broken, to repair what is broken inside us to heal us spiritually, to rescue us from the mess that we've made of our own lives and of our world. And if we want to know Him, to grow to be more like Him, to encounter Him, we have to begin to cultivate a lifestyle of generosity that reflects His generosity to us. So the question is how? Practically speaking, let me leave you with three things. And I've said them in different ways before. You've probably heard them if you've been around for a while, but let me say them in a little bit different way um, this morning. First of all, how do we cultivate a generous heart? One is by being intentionally generous. We must have an intentional practice and a clear guideline. What David tells us in that psalm is that God doesn't desire merely sacrifice. That is, bringing tithes and offerings without a heart of worship. But God doesn't do away with the sacrificial system in the Old Testament or the giving and offering system in the New Testament. This widow had a time and a place in which to give her offering. In the Old Testament, worshipers were expected to bring at least 10% and to bring it to a specific place and time, to bring it to the temple in worship. There was a regular practice and there was a regular guideline. 
In the New Testament, the expectation of giving during public worship, and that's why we have it as a part of our liturgy, is very explicitly commanded and clear. But what is no longer emphasized? The tithe, the 10%, is no longer emphasized. So what are we to make of this? Are we to say that, well, that was an impossible standard, and so we're going to dial that back down to something that's more realistic? Or is the church, being clearer beneficiaries of grace, being on the other side of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, to think about giving in a different way? Wouldn't it be inconceivable that Christians are called to give less than their Old Testament counterparts? The implication is that the tithe is perhaps the minimum guideline. Now, we can certainly be legalistic about this. Does that mean off of our gross income or our net income? Does it mean just to the church or to charitable donations count? We can splice this and parse this in many different ways. That's not the point. The point is that God has given us a guideline and he expects a regular practice and that we can, we can breed charitable generosity by practicing charitable generosity. The 10% is a guideline and some of us you know, understand me, some of us have extenuating circumstances that make that utterly impossible, and there is grace and there's mercy for that. And others need to give far more than that. But start with a guideline. If you can't do 10%, start with 5% or 8%, and then work it up each year and continue working it up if possible. First of all, be intentionally generous. Have a practice, have a guideline. Secondly, be responsibly generous. Maybe you have massive debts from an illness. Maybe you've been looking for work for months and you simply have no income. You can't possibly aspire to tie 10% and still eat. In one of the passages that we read earlier in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul celebrates this Macedonian church. He writes to the Corinthian church and says, look at these Macedonian people. He's almost shaming them into giving more. And he says that for the Macedonian church, says that I testify that they gave as much as they were able. They gave according to their means. And he says farther down in the same letter um, that our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. God understands that there are seasons in our financial lives, that there are seasons of life where we have plenty and some seasons where we are in need. Some people have lives of wealth and other people have lives of need. And so there are times where we are called to give more and there are times where it's okay to give less. And you can have a a valid intention to give even when you're practically prevented from doing so. The real issue not is not how much. For you, as I said, it might be $10 or it might be 10000 The question is, where is your heart? And for you, what level of giving is responsibly generous? So intentionally generous, responsibly generous, and then finally, sacrificially generous. In verse 4 of the passage that we read in the Gospel of Luke, all these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Or more technically, or more literally, she put in all the life that she had. She put in all the bios, is the underlying word, that she had. 
No savings account, no IRAs, no guarantee of future paychecks. She was all in. She sacrificed any and all tangible signs of security, tangible signs of control in her life. She gave it all away. It's irresponsible grace. Contrasting with being responsibly generous, there are times, like in this widow's life, where she wanted to be irresponsibly generous, lavishly generous. And we can't do this each and every week, but our giving should be a sacrifice. It shouldn't be just something that we can easily do away with, that we can easily part with. That's not the point in giving. A few years ago here at Intown, when we were in the middle of one of our seasons of financial need, I got an email from an in-town family that said that they didn't have any surplus that they could tap into in the coming weeks when that need was going to be particularly great. But what they decided to do is they reasoned that they only ate what was in their refrigerator and in their pantry already, that then they could give what they saved from not having to go back to the grocery store that week. Now, perhaps that wasn't a great gift in terms of actual money. Perhaps it didn't necessarily balance our budget, but it was sacrificial. It was lavish generosity. It was the widow's two copper coins. They didn't hedge their bets. Do you believe, and this is the real question as it comes to giving, do you trust that God has your best interests at heart? Or do you hedge your bets? Do you believe that God has been radically generous to you? We see God's lavish generosity when we see Jesus coming and taking up our cause. Jesus coming and sacrificing on our behalf. Jesus coming and giving up His very life on the cross for us. And if you're a Christian this morning, that's your only motivation to give, is that God has been radically generous to you in the person of His Son. That giving money won't gain you God's favor, it won't gain you God's attention. That's the exact opposite of the Gospel. But God wants your heart. And when He has your heart, then your heart will be free to give as an expression of gratitude and of worship. If your heart is captured by the radical generosity of Jesus, it will change everything. It will change your relationship with everything, particularly with money. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this time to be honest, to seek the truth about our own lives, even though it might be painful. Father, I pray that we would maybe even take an extra step to talk with a friend, to spend time in our community groups thinking about how we use our money. I pray that we would take time to revisit this passage and not just to think about money, but to think about you, to think about your radical, lavish generosity towards us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.